Hello and welcome to the penultimate episode of Cancel Too Soon, the podcast where myself, Kevin Ford, and my other host, Jerome Cusan, talk about television series we think may have been canceled too soon. And today it is part two of our three-part series looking at the Netflix television series Glow, The Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. Jerome, that cool breeze you feel isn't just the fall weather. It's the uh, the death knell coming of Cancel Too Soon. How are you feeling about this? I am awash with emotions. I think we've taken quite a journey. We've explored a lot of fantastic shows that were probably canceled too soon. But, you know, I do have to say, Kevin, and maybe this is just because of my feelings on Glow Season 2, I'm also happy to be thinking about, like, what we're going to be doing moving forward, transitioning away from canceled too soon, uh, because I'm definitely I'm feeling a little bit of burnout in terms of our theme and, and kinds of shows uh, that we're discussing, but you know, this is, this really truly is the, the best way to go out. I think talking about something that is so, that feels both like a byproduct of this time has to do with wrestling, has some really great performances, can, is a mixed bag at times. This is really truly the perfect show for us to go on, on I think. Yeah, and I think you, I'm glad that we did this theme. I'm glad I got to revisit some of my all-time favorite shows. I'm glad I got to discover others. But it does put us in a little bit of a box as to what we can cover. Lots of canceled shows, not so many that were maybe canceled too soon. I think Glow is a great way for us to go out, and today we're going to be talking about the second season of Glow. As I mentioned on episode one, go back and listen to it if you'd like. The show was renewed for a second season on August 10th, 2017. That's about six weeks, seven weeks after season one premiered that they knew they're getting a second season. So there was a lot of like hopefulness, but uncertainty when listening to a lot of those interviews around that time. And I wanted to explore, you know, like I try to do some of the media pieces out about glow season two, and there wasn't a ton there. I mean, there, they did like, they sent out Mark Marin and Allison Bree together to talk about it. They sent out Mark Marin and um, Betty Gilpin to talk about it a little bit, but it's a lot of like those, you know, it's almost like a press junket where there's a lot of like fluff conversations or really general conversations about the show, but nothing too, not, nothing too deep. So I don't have a lot to mention there. But what I think is worth mentioning is what was going on in Hollywood around this time and how it seemingly informed how the show was going to play out. Because a big theme of the show is men and the predatory behavior of Hollywood. In October of 2017, there was widespread exposure of accusations of predatory behavior by Harvey Weinstein. Alyssa Milano had a blog post on the subject in mid-October. I know like Selma Hayek came out with some stuff and it it was this watershed moment of actresses feeling okay and comfortable to come out and speak out about some of these experiences they've had with men in Hollywood about being made to feel sexually harassed or assaulted or just felt worthless, whether it's in a writer's room, whether it's on the set. All these other things, and it, it it created what was then known as the Me Too movement to both draw attention to these stories, but also to uh, create this this uh, all these people as the magnitude of the you know emphasize the magnitude of the problem, and also give power to the people who maybe have wanted to come out and speak out against these people the opportunity to do so, and it created what co- was called the Weinstein effect, where. You know, Weinstein was sort of the, the first person to do this, but several other allegations against many different people across many different media outlets were reported against uh, not only him, but a lot of others in Hollywood. And it was this reckoning that was sort of coming against sexual harassment in Hollywood. And you see a lot of that play out about what it was like being a woman in Hollywood 
in television in the 80s as the uh, during Glow. Now, I'm I'm uncertain if that was going to be a, a major focus of season two before this. I do think that obviously that could have been tied on even without this movement going forward. But it is very interesting that this is what's going on in the culture at the time uh, around the t- same time the show gets renewed and written. And then it comes out in June of 2018, and it is still very relevant. So I remember all of this taking place, and it was, you know, it's a lot to take in. It's hard to read about some people who are behind your favorite films or shows and the people they are. I think a lot of us just want to remain ignorant to it. But it, it it's overall, I think there is no way this isn't a net positive for Hollywood. But Jerome, anything you want to you want to mention about this at, at the top of the show here? I think this is in many ways, a direct response to the election of Donald J. Trump in November of 2016, because Donald Trump is a a documented serial abuser and rapist, and he ends up in the White House. And instead of going after him, which I want to emphasize that he should never have been elected, he should have been allowed to run because, again, he is a serial predator. And I think the feeling was we need to expose these other individuals and try to get this conversation going. Harvey Weinstein, those accusations, some of the worst kept secrets in Hollywood. I mean, there were jokes about how, what a, what a skeezy guy this, he was in the nineties. I mean, tons of accusations and none of them ever stuck. And it's fascinating what has stuck, what hasn't stuck, which actors are still able to find work which ones aren't, but, you know, you look at the Harvey Weinsteins and the Bill Cosbys, I mean, these these are kind of the kings of this. They are the poster boys uh, for the Me Too movement, as is justified, because, again, just like uh, the former occupant of the White House, these men are also both serial abusers. And I think it is something that is a conversation that I don't know if this podcast is the appropriate place to have this extended conversation, but it is certainly one that uh, if you go to the right places and read the right books, uh, I would strongly recommend Mo Ryan's Burn It Down. Uh, it is a great book. I would highly recommend people check it out. She does a great job addressing these kinds of issues, plus a whole lot more. Uh, yeah, definitely you should go out and, and read and inform yourself about um, these issues because it is it is very much worth it is it's worth a discussion. Again, our focus is going to be on the show as it should be, but yeah, just wanted to uh, to point that out. And I will say there is a casting choice that we are going to talk about later. Uh, that in hindsight, probably not the best move. No, but again, that's in hindsight. You don't know. It is correct. You just go with it. So it I, is what it I, is. I did it. I did a Google search and I, I found out when the accusations were made, and it was after the second season was even released. So. No, no. And, and I and, and I think the absence of a couple different wrestlers uh, from season one not being part of the show too also speaks to I think the serious nature they take of some people who maybe felt as as Betty Gilpin alluded to made her feel uncomfortable uh, not being back in the show. So they it are seems you referring are you referring to a possible former NWA champion? Uh, I think so. I'm trying to think if there's multiple on the show that I can cover my own ass and just say that blankly. But you know what? Even if there's not, fuck it. Yes. Yes. Allegedly. Always allegedly. Always allegedly. 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 Uh, Let's allegedly talk about the second season. How about that? Sure. Well, I also think it is very much worth mentioning that all this stuff's going down October 2017, the beginning 
of the, the Me Too movement. And then it's just one month later that Genji Cohen signs an exclusive multi-year deal with Netflix in November. And a comment from the that I thought was very interesting was she said, current climate aside, it's great to be in bed with Netflix. Peculiar choice of wording there, no doubt. But I think it goes to show that it was hard to feel good about even your own personal triumphs. No doubt about it. This is a big thing for Genji Cohen to, to sign an exclusive deal like this. I think there's a lot of writers who aspire for deals like that with a Netflix or an HBO or whatever else, especially at this time. And for her to get that and not to be able to celebrate it because of the current climate, like it, it, I, I understand. It's something that you want to be able – it's like people trying to be excited about shows they have during the, the writer strike that they can't promote. Um, so yeah, I, I understand her, her mind frame at that time. I think it's certainly reasonable, and Kenji Cohen has proven to be uh, a tremendous success with Weeds as well as Orange is the New Black, and I know that she doesn't have a lot of creative influence over this show, but uh, she certainly godmothered it to existence, so yeah, I mean, she absolutely has every right to celebrate, but uh, as we will talk about with season three, I think that the, the, the issues are also going to start to come to light as well in terms of uh, Netflix's process for renewing and canceling and then canceling shows after they've been renewed. So we'll get into all that next month. But for right now, yeah, I think her getting it is definitely a big deal because, again, Orange is the New Black cannot be emphasized enough. That is the first show that I would say really hit the hit the zeitgeist. I know House of Cards – was there. I know there was a, you know, the season of Arrested Development that we're all going to pretend didn't happen. But to me, Orange is the New Black is to me the first quote unquote Netflix show. It is the quintessential one uh, that I think will always be associated uh, with uh, with this with this network. And uh, just like I feel the same thing, like Mad Men, even though it's not the first AMC show, it's probably going to always be regarded as like the quintessential one. Sopranos for HBO as well. You don't think Breaking Bad took that spot from Mad Men in the end of the long run? I mean, maybe because I know Breaking Bad still has repeats on AMC. But for me, Mad Men is the show that really crossed, really crossed over and and brought AMC to the point where they could even get a Breaking Bad or some of the other shows that they did. And I'm, I'm not necessarily saying which one is better or which one is more popular at this point, because I think clearly Breaking Bad is the more popular of the shows. But I don't think you get to a point where you have 11 seasons of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul without that first season of Mad Men. Fair enough. So let's get into the season itself. Episode one, Viking Funeral. We start with a new cast member. We find out that Cherry, at the end of season one, she's being offered a television role on KDDV, and she has to choose between Glow and the show. She's chosen the show, so now we have a new character, Yolanda, a.k.a. Yo-Yo, played by Shakira Barrera, is the new junk chain, and she is not welcomed by the rest of the Glow crew. Now, Jerome, I can't think of many instances in wrestling where someone came in, took a previously existing character and put it on and it was successful. Are you making specific reference to something else, Kevin? I think you're thinking of something maybe different, but I just think about like the second doink wasn't as first as the first, uh, you know, the, the fake razor and diesel were a bust. It just never feels like the, you know, the person inhabiting the character is the character. It's, it's, uh, it's tough uh, under, to repackage. under faker. Under Faker, for sure. The Under Faker. But that uh, was always supposed to be short-term. Yeah. Uh, maybe the second version of the Nature Boy is the better than the first. Ric Flair is 
I mean, Buddy Rogers is a legend, but Ric Flair is arguably associated with that name. So that might be an exception, but I mean, that's different. That wasn't right. like a straight up character. And yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a weird position for her to come in. And I think anytime you bring in a new cast member, especially when the ensemble is already big and it's like, well, here's another one. And I think that she does a very good job, but she gets almost no character development whatsoever. It takes us a really long time to even get to know her. And uh, I think this is a, I think this is a running issue with the season. And I know that everybody's concerned about episode length, but I can't help but think, and I'm just going to say this right at the top. I think this season would have been better if the episodes were closer to 45 minutes. And I get that you want this to be a comedy. You really want that 30 minute runtime. But when I was watching the season finale, which is 45 minutes, I, I felt like that really told a better story than a lot of the 30 minute episodes, especially the penultimate one, which is really bad. Um, so that's where I come down on this. And yeah, I just want to say at the beginning, and I think that this is a really good representation. I think, again, Shakira Barrera does a really good job, but she doesn't get a lot to do. And we don't, again, it feels like we don't really see her uh, as a character until like episode eight or nine. Yeah, and I do think she's fantastic. Always great when she's on screen, and I think it's great that she makes Junk Chain her own. She doesn't just try to do what Cherry was doing, and that's a hard role to be in, and I think she excels. But obviously, you're coming into a group of of actresses who already know each other. They miss Cherry. They don't like that her role is being recast because they also don't know why she's gone. And something else they're doing that I that I find relatable is they're actually turning the boxing gym into where they film. So I guess whatever Bash's mother lent them, that ballroom is a one-time thing. Funds are tight, so they're redressing the boxing gym and turning it into the recording studio. I've seen this smallest done as Chikara with their Wrestle Factory doing the same thing up to the WWE turning their performance center into where they filmed during the pandemic. But they do a heck of a job dressing it up and making it look TV-ready, so to speak. It's pretty magical with a little bit of paint and pipe and drape and some other things will do to really gussy up a joint. I have heard that WWE does an amazing job of dressing up the arenas, especially I remember that they were talking about the Citrus Bowl and just the work that they did there. So, yes. yeah, I mean, you, with with the right budget, pipe and drape, like you said, uh, you could do incredible things. And, yeah, I think this is, uh, this is a pretty amusing episode, and you're kind of re-familiarizing yourself with the characters. And, uh, yeah, it's a... Uh, it was it was a great it was great to see the gym gussied up a little bit because there's no way that they could continue to film in that gym otherwise. No. And I do like that the girls are down because Cherry's gone and they can't practice because of the renovations they're doing. So Sam half ass deputizes Ruth to go cheer them up and so she decides, hey, you know what we could do? We could film an opening. So they go to the mall of all places and she grabs a cameraman to do a rogue shoot at the mall. And it's a great bonding experience, and it's a lot of fun, and Russell and Ruth, Russell's the cameraman, he's the new character, him and Ruth sort of flirt with each other, and uh, Vicky even tells Ruth, like, hey, you know what, we have a lot more fun when you're directing and uh, than we do with Sam. That obviously blows up a bit at the end, but I mean, the mall stuff was a whole lot of fun to watch, I thought. It was. I, I think we needed more of that throughout the season. I think, I, yes. I, I know that I wanted more 
of Ruth bonding with the cast and Debbie not, because I think that's important to realize, especially when we get uh, to the seventh episode and just what kind of what happens. And I'll, I'll explain that when we get there, but I really wanted to see more of Ruth is the one that's taking the initiative and the other people in the cast respect her for it. And they see that she is the one that is putting in the hard work. This is a really great example. I think we needed more of this, but especially if you watch this episode and then you watch the finale, they're actually really, it really makes sense. I think this is a ton of fun. And uh, the open, which we see at episode eight uh, is, is perfect. Uh, for what they're going for. Again, kind of this cheesy 80s feel, very good stuff. And you see that when she Ruth surprises Sam with it and the KDTV producers there and Bash loves it, the producer loves it, all the girls love it. Sam doesn't. This is like the very much the first sign of of Sam feeling either th- you know threatened by Ruth or disliking that someone else's creative vision is getting credit and not his. And when Vicky speaks up, she gets fired because Sam is feeling all sorts of ways and he has to show his power. Debbie does the same a little bit later. So it's you get this maybe this producer power and you don't like when other people are kind of stepping on your toes. But that's that this is the sort of the you get the the, the descent between Sam and Ruth beginning here a lot more from Sam's side than Ruth's side. But I think it's done and revealed very well. I think part of the issue is where the Sam Ruth stuff goes. A hundred percent. And, I, and I, that really colors my feeling on this. It just feels like we're kind of one step forward, three steps backwards with Sam in terms of his character development. It was just, it felt a little bit oddly placed. But again, I think the fact that even at the end of the episode, they're teasing the possibility of a romance between the two. And I think that was a, that is a huge mistake that is one of those things that is, is almost unforgivable in many ways. We will get there. Because, oh, we, we will get there. But yeah, it's just, again, I, I think Mark Maron is great in this role, but sometimes, and I, I, I know I compared the show to Halt and Catch Fire. Couldn't help but do that. Again, to me, the lesson that the Halt and Catch Fire writers learned is our female characters are actually the drivers of this show. There are times when I watched the second season of Glow where it felt like they weren't, the, the women were not driving the bus so yes. to speak, and and we needed a lot more of the girls driving the bus, and Debbie and Ruth being more at the center than Sam and Bash, and I think that's that is a that is also uh, an issue. And I think the other thing is that for me, I think the show at times they will talk about certain issues and get into things, but it very much feels like they're they're paying lip service to it. And there, there's a couple of examples uh, that I'll cite later, but definitely something I want to kind of set up now um, in terms of hitting on certain things and then either letting them, letting them go by the wayside or just it's sort of feeling like, well, we have to move on because we only have 10 episodes and 30 minutes. So we have to move on to the next thing. And yeah, it just, it's, 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 things are a little bit awkward. What isn't awkward, Kevin? Is the, is Justine does not have to wear a terrible wig anymore, and that makes me very, very happy. Yep, she's still around. She's not wrestling. She is living with Sam at this time because you remember in season one we found out that that is her birth father, and now she's just a merch girl for Billy's band, and she's in school. So we'll see a little bit more of Justine and Sam during the show. Overall, I think that was a good way to, sh- to for like Sam to grow as a character. Even even maybe more so than the Ruth relationship is just him having to like 
step up and be a bit of a dad, stop having to be so selfish, having an actual woman in his life, I think is helpful for him. The Justine stuff isn't perfect, but I do like it for the most part. I do too. I think that's actually where Sam's primary storyline should have been uh, with Justine. I think that was the best place for him to be positioned and the best place uh, for her to be positioned as well. Uh, We don't get nearly as much of Billy, but... I mean, again, there's too many people on this show, so sacrificing Billy is probably the right call. Agreed. Uh, probably going to sacrifice some other men, too. Jerome, let's talk about contracts in pro wrestling. And I guess contracts in television, too. Because <laughs> on this first set, everybody's presented contracts. And now a lot of these girls are inexperienced. They don't know any better. They got no other prospects, so they just sign on the dotted line and hand it back over. Debbie, however, has been on a television show before. So she puts the contract in her purse and has a separate meeting with the KD, KDTV producer and makes sure his wife is also present at the dinner. And boy, oh boy, is she smart. And she brings her soon-to-be ex-husband because we learn they're getting a divorce, but I guess he's either an attorney or has some sort of some sort of background in this. But they have a dinner, and, and uh, she gets a more fair contract for someone of her television stature, and she ends up becoming a producer because of this. So now it's not just – Bash and Sam, but Bash, Sam, and Debbie as our three producers of the show. I liked this play a lot. Um, I think it's, like you said, it's another step in the Debbie sort of distancing herself from being just another member of the crew and sort of trying to put herself above them. Yeah, I, I I like that scene. It's one of my favorite scenes that Betty Gilpin has in the season, actually, and I think it works out really well. I I really appreciated what they did with the contracts and having her kind of assert herself. I think that's a good thing. Having her join on as a producer, also uh, a hugely uh, positive thing. Uh, I've never signed a contract in pro wrestling. and don't know that I would. Uh, I I would have an attorney read it um, because I don't trust people in wrestling, and I think I have good reason not to. I do remember a story that uh, Robert Anthony Egotistico Fantastico, when he went to Deep South, he got a contract, and his dad's friend who was a lawyer read it and said, this is the worst sports contract I've ever read. Don't sign this. And he did anyways. So that's just one example I know of hearing about what it, uh, a WWE training contract would have looked like in 2006. I can't imagine what signing a contract for wrestling or a reality show is. It's just got to be the most horrific conditions. And uh, that's why the best day to unionize is yesterday. And the second best day to unionize is today. A hundred percent. Well, in episode two, candy of the year, we get our first taping. It's a drag matches are too long and there's a dead crowd. Now that's, I've never have been to a wrestling show like that, Jerome, where the mat, where the show went too long and the matches are too long and the crowd was dead. Can't say I've ever experienced that before. Was this an AEW show that they were shooting? <laughs> Glow may have had more fans in attendance for this ep- this show than AEW. Ouch, Kevin. Yikes. Man, oh, man. Allegedly. Well, th- allegedly. Well, this is where we see that Sam is punishing Ruth by not putting her on the show. And then when he puts her back on the show, he puts her with Yolanda, who is the least experienced uh, a wrestler. But she is a very experienced dancer. I like their scene when they she she's dancing at the at like the snack bar and Bruce says, aha. Well, that's something we can do, and they kind of turn that into their match. And I like that they have the producers talking about, you know, what's going to get cut, what's going to make the show. And Sam wants it cut, but Debbie calls him out for saying, you know, hey, you're you've been punishing Ruth too long. This is going to be good for the show. We need the energy up for the show. Bash agrees, and it gets to make the air. But I also like it because 
Debbie's calling him out for continuing to punish Ruth for longer than he should when uh, some could argue that she's doing the same. You almost have to watch his show with it with the thinking that Debbie is Hulk Hogan and Ruth is Bret Hart. And I think it makes for I mean, I think that is the perfect those are the perfect comparisons, I would say, because Ruth is very much this this hard worker who is very diligent and is going to make, you know, lemonade, make turn lemons into lemonade and. You know, she's going to do what she needs to do. I mean, this is the equivalent of what Bret Hart would have to take on like, every two-bit rookie that the WWF would bring in and then would somehow make it great because he's just that good. And the same thing with Ruth here, again, establishing how good she is and uh, the fact that she respects Yolanda. And she treats Yolanda with respect, and I think that's a good thing because none of the other cast members really are. But Ruth is like, you know what? Let's find out what you do well. Uh, let's take those strengths. Let's use them to our advantage. And I, I very much appreciate that. And again, kind of building up this idea that Ruth is kind of the workhorse of the group and kind of justifying again, what happens at the end of the season. Most definitely. Uh, something else that's very real life to wrestling is you get in, in episode one already is done with the Beirut character. She was scarred for the, the racist chance and the beer being thrown at her in the finale of season one. So now she wants to get rid of that. And she has this idea to blow herself up and become the character of the Phoenix. And she's talking about this at training and the beat down biddies over here, this and decide to steal the idea and transform themselves from grandmothers into punk rockers named nuke and ozone, the toxic twins. And then Beirut pitches second after them. And the producers say, Ah, we can't do two transformations. And since they saw the Toxic Twins first, they get it. Gay get it, and Beirut is still Beirut. Lesson learned in wrestling: never talk about things until they're a sure thing, and uh, trademark your shit if you need to. Uh, and then we don't hear from Marthy for basically like seven episodes. Yeah, they like this just gets dropped, and like she's just still Beirut and like doesn't care or succumbs to it. And it's like we don't even find out she's not in medical school until like the the finale, just about. Right. They just kind of drop it and they move on to what she's got going on with Yolanda, which I like. But it's like we're just gonna drop this and move on. Oh, okay, I guess, but very very bothersome that she just stays Beirut and that's that, rather than some other. Some other twist or turn in here. It's uh, it's pretty, it's pretty weird. But one character that I think they do great by in season two is Tamay, the welfare queen. Debbie is, is talking about having a producer's dinner. Sam and Bash decide they're going to blow it off, and Tamay overhears this, and she also was like, "Oh, a dinner with the cast that would be a lot of fun." And she, after overhearing them say they're going to bail, she goes over to Debbie's house instead, and they have a bonding moment. They're trying to figure out the producers are what to do about the dead crowd. And when Tamea is leaving, she pulls out a candy bar and says, oh, I also have some some candy to wake myself up on these long drives home. And boom, there's your idea. Give some sugar to the crowd to wake them up. I don't know that we never really see that materialize or become even a thing after this episode. But Tamea, Kia, Kia Stevens does an awesome job all season long. And I'm really glad we got this scene with her and Debbie. I think that was a cool thing. This is a, this is a really good season for Kia Stevens. She gets a lot more to do. Clearly, the writers – kind of understood what they had. Uh, she does get to do some of the wrestling in season two, which is good because she's a wrestler. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. And I don't think people who don't watch wrestling can really appreciate just how different Kia Stevens is when she is amazing Kong compared to when she is, uh, to It's, it's a wild transformation. And I think you can really appreciate her performance 
if you watch her as Amazing Kong, it really is kind of like feeling, it really does feel like you're talking about a completely different person. And I think it's a testament to her skills as an actor uh, that she is able to do this. And when she mentioned that she wanted to be the next Whoopi Goldberg, in the in the back of my mind, I'm like, yeah, she should be. She should be the next Whoopi Goldberg because she's really, really good. She's fantastic, and it's such a shame that I feel like she hasn't done much of acting after this because, man, she is phenomenal in this show. And it's not just because it's a wrestling show. Like, the acting stuff is top-notch. So, yeah, she's one of my favorite parts of season two for sure. I actually think Justine is also one of my favorite parts. I feel like her acting gets a lot better too, not just her wig. And I like the scene in this episode where she's at one of Billy's concerts. She gets in a fight with somebody who's given her a hard time. And then even better is when she gets home and Sam is helping her out with first aid and says, ah, you could stay here as long as you want, but you're also going back to high school. It was a funny moment at the concert and then a sweet moment with her and Sam at the end there. So I liked what, I like what Justine's doing. Yeah, I don't really have a lot to add. I think that she, she gets a lot more to do. Her performance is good. And that's really all I could say. Again, when you get rid of a terrible wig, uh, you unlock, uh, the, the, uh, the character, I guess, but, so I will say there is a bad wig that I think we are about to get to in just a couple minutes. But I will say the difference between that wig and this one is I think that it is a conscious choice to have a bad wig. So it's a little bit different this season. For sure. And episode three is about concerned women of America, where we get the KDTV people are saying that they're getting complaints about GLOW by women's activist groups. And so – Debbie is tasked with writing PSAs to air during the broadcast to sort of help their image. And Ruth helps her write one about teenage pregnancy. And I think it's very funny that neither of them know how to use a typewriter. But Sheila, ever uh, ever so useful, is the one who types it up with glee. Sheila doesn't get a ton to do this season, but she really is great in every scene she has. So I just want to give a shout out to Sheila here. You said with glee, the name of the show is Glow. So she does it with Glow, not the other show. She does it with Glow. Okay, well, fine. <laughs> I did forget to mention, too, that in episode one, Debbie cock blocks Ruth from going out with Russell, the cameraman, afterwards because he's asking her, like, oh, do you want to come back and review some footage? Not being discreet at all. But then Russell and Ruth decide that they are going to go on a date and they're going to go to this film festival. And they're being discreet about this at work. They don't want it to get out. But Debbie keeps Ruth late because they're filming the PSA. She wants to do some more voiceovers. And when it's all said and done, Ruth thinking that Debbie has no idea that – Ruth had to ditch their date to do this with her, invites her to go out for dinner afterwards, and Debbie gives her attitude and reveals that she did this on purpose. So again, Debbie thinks Sam is punishing Ruth for too long. I mean, we're, we're, you know, months into her being upset about her cheating on her husband, and, you know, now she's intentionally trying to sabotage her, her dating life. It's, I think there's some hypocrisy going on here. Absolutely, for sure. And, uh, it's, it's a very poor look for Debbie. In so many, in so many ways, but I don't know. So I was thinking about Russell, like in terms of, again, Alison Brie's been on all these great shows and you look at, you look at her chemistry with someone like Jill McHale, uh, with even Will Arnett in animated form on Bojack Horseman with Vincent Carthizer. I don't know. Russell just, it's, it's really strange because I can't tell at times whether the show wants us to think Russell's a nice guy, kind of a dud. I wish the show, the show really needed to take more of a perspective on Russell as a character because there's also points when he's not in episodes for like for like he's not in entire episodes. It's really really weird at times, and 
again, I can't always tell what the perspective is here. I think the performance is just okay too. I think that is part of the issue. I think, and the other thing for me is that regardless of how I feel about the, the, the romance between Sam and Ruth, I can definitely say that Mark Marin and Allison Brie have better chemistry than the actor who plays Russell and Allison Brie. I can say that. I do like Russell. I do think they could have spent more time with Russell. And you're right. I think it's one of those instances of it's two people who probably a lot of civilians don't get it, but because they're both in showbiz, like him being a former porn director and her being this struggling actress that does this weird Russian character thing, they both kind of get it and it helps to bond them because they both obviously have an appreciation and love for not only film and television, but the art behind it. So they're a good fit in that respect. Um, that's kind of what I got out of the whole thing. And I think Russell does a good job in the scenes he's given, even if he's not, we're not given a lot of backstory behind him, except for just, he's a doof who has a crush on Ruth. Cherry, we finally get to check in on, on her television show, which it's like a lady cop show, I think, or a detective show. It looks show. really, it looks really terrible and sloppy. Yes. And she's having a rough go at it. So much so that they kind of spring it on her that her character's lines are being reduced. They have her change her hair to get it all straightened. And Keith, who's her husband and the referee for Glow, knows she's having a hard time of it. So she has Sam come to talk to her on set, which is a nice moment. And then Sam talks to the KDDV people and makes an arrangement where she gets out of her contract for the show and comes back to Glow. At the time, I sort of had a tough feeling about this because it felt like a regression for the character of Cherry. She's kind of going back to what's comfortable when she doesn't make it on the show. But I do think her getting some agency over her new character helps me feel better about it a couple episodes on. What about you? I Again, I think the performance is really, really good. And I like where they eventually get – they eventually get to a good place. But I don't, I don't like the fact that Cherry essentially is in like four or five episodes and really – does it get a lot to do in terms of interacting with the rest of, uh, with the rest of the cast? We get no follow up from last season with her and Melrose, which is a little bit strange. I, I, I do appreciate the fact that they addressed like the idea of, uh, what, what happens when you have white women doing black women's hair. That is a legitimate issue that has been brought up and definitely was brought up, uh, in the, in, you know, summer of 2020, 2021, which I'm sure we'll get to when we talk about the, the postmortem of the third season. So it was nice that they addressed that part of it. And Carrie's hair really does look, really does look awful. And, uh, yeah, duh, th- this is, this is my memo. Um, make sure that you have somebody who knows how to deal with black hair when you are on a set because it is very different. And yeah, um, I, again, I like Carrie. I like, I like the fact that we get Keith back as well. Prom- more prominently, and uh, I, their relationship to me is is one of the best on the show. I really like it. Yeah, I do too. I love that you have this very healthy, loving relationship between the two of them. There's not a lot of fighting or this. You get that other places on the show. You don't need it here, so I like that. And then the rest of the, the cast kind of gets a short shrift. They're all sad because they haven't been laid, so they have a party. Melanie's all sad because Ellen's making out with this cameraman that she had a crush on. It all feels very high school, which I'm sure is a reality of like there's some arrested development going on when you're in a cast on a television show like this, but it really just felt like let's just do this to give everyone else on the show something to do. But it's not the it's not important at all. Uh, 
Baby Debbie, Baby Ruth, and the rest. Basically, yeah. <laughs> like the Simpsons? Yeah. yeah. Except except they're all women, so when they swing the baseball bat, they all miss. Ouch. Wow. You went there, huh? What? They had Marge miss? That's not my <laughs> joke. So we'll blame the men on the Simpsons, right? That's right. The male writers of the Simpsons. Whatever season that was. Episode four, I it's I can't decide if this or episode eight is my favorite of the season. But this is easily one of the best of the of not only the season, but I think of the show to date is episode four, Mother of All Matches. Did you like it as much as I did? I I definitely liked one half of it more. There we go. Yep. Agreed. For me for me, episode seven episode seven is actually my favorite of the season. This is like probably three or four, if I were to rank them. I really like the uh, the welfare queen aspect of it and exploring her relationship with her son. I get the parallel of also kind of doing something with Debbie. That makes a lot of sense. But I want to emphasize, I think Betty Gilpin is doing a really, really good job. But when you in rewatching this season, uh, I've come to the conclusion that Debbie is not a good person. And what? I think that is <laughs> – I mean – I don't know. I don't know why I didn't realize this the first time, but – and again, I think her husband is kind of a doofus too, but she makes some pretty poor decisions in this episode, makes some pretty poor decisions throughout the season, and I think uh, we're, we're, we're kind of getting that all here. But again, Betty Gilpin is doing tremendous work here. I This is not – this is an indictment of the character development, not on Betty Gilpin because, again, I think – there, there's a reason that she's the co-lead of the show because she's really good. And to me, Kia Stevens is right up there as well. I think and performance-wise, this is really strong. I love the bonding with her and her son. I love the idea of the single mom being successful, uh, getting her kid into Stanford, being like the antithesis of the welfare queen in so many ways. And the son realizing like this is pretty racist, but understanding why she's doing it and – just like if he is disappointed, if he is really bitter or angry about it, he is doing a really good job of hiding it and is just there for his mom. And I think that's really touching. I don't think we get enough of that on TV. Uh, that part of it is probably some of the best stuff of the season. And the fact that she's so prideful and is willing to like go see her son, even if just for a few hours, even though she's got this big match. Uh, yeah, that that aspect of this, oh, it's so good. Yeah, it's great. And I like that, you know, she visits her son on campus and she's she there's obviously some level of shame because she hasn't told him yet, and it's not until another dad on campus recognizes her that she has to kind of confess it. It seems like she was maybe getting ready to tell him. Uh but then you also see like a girl on campus calls him by the wrong name. And then you see another like light-skinned, lighter-skinned black person on campus and that's who it actually is. And they kind of have a laugh about it, like, you don't look nothing like that guy, but it goes to show you just your your casual racism in the eighties on a college campus like Stanford. Uh 80s. Uh I've I've had black students who this has happened to them in twenty twenty three. So Welfare Queen's a great character. But it is also the what does this do to her son? You know, if someone finds out it's it's his mother who's portraying this character on TV. And what does how does that portray the image of of, you know, of, of black America to the people watching at home? You know, are, yes, you're getting television time. Yes, you're the champion. But is it worth it if you're if you have to be this character that's very exploitive? You're kind of laughed at at the end after you lose and they put you in a 
fast food restaurant apron and give you a mop and chant, get a job and it makes your son, you know, so angry. He has tears in his eyes. Like it, it it's a tough moment for, for her to swallow. And it, it is a very uncomfortable watch for sure. Uh, maybe we need to give a book uh, to Debbie about intersectional feminism, perhaps. <laughs> maybe we do. Uh, and it's very funny that like her wheelbarrow arm drag is what wins a crown where I'm like that move wouldn't do anything to anyone today. <laughs> I mean, maybe in Chikara you could get away with it. <laughs> maybe you could. And I like that it leads to the finale too. But anyways, I do like the moment when her son is like – obviously he's like, yep, you warned me to be racist. But he he was – I think he was – you know, he says he's very inspired by the athleticism and her strength that she showed. So he can at least see when he when he's able to digest it and think about it, he sees the positive and the get dinner. And that's a really nice way to end that. So that – It's, it's that, really great. It's – I mean I can't emphasize how cool – this is for sure the debbie stuff's very interesting and i think it's it's interesting because the payoff i think is so good because it's further painting her as sort of this villainous when again she's she's been done wrong but is handling it the wrong way because what happens is is mark's secretary calls to ask about what bed she has because he wants to get the same one for his apartment she takes that all wrong she sells the bed then sells all the apartment in the house She's so mad she forgets to pick up her own son at daycare. And then when Mark's at the house, he says, hey, idiot, I wanted to get the same bed because I wanted my apartment to be as similar and comfortable for our own son. So when he's spending time between two houses, it's less painful or whatever it would be for a baby. And I I think he's right. I think she handled this very poorly. The Mark Debbie stuff, I think, works at times. I think that. I have very conflicting feelings because uh, I like Rick Summers as a as an actor, and I really like the moment in the first episode when he is when he is helping his wife. I mean, he he has personal incentive in it because obviously if she makes money, he kind of makes money too, and it's it's a good thing for the family. So I, I like that moment, but I'm not sure that this totally works because I mean, even though Debbie's reaction isn't great, I mean, Mark is kind of. He is still lying because he is, you know, with the secretary, and that's very much a cliche. I mean, literally something you could almost take right out of Mad Men. But uh, I will say that the idea of Debbie selling all the furniture is kind of a logical thing for a divorced person to do. I once, uh, I once knew somebody who got divorced, and uh, she shaved her head as kind of a symbol of this is a this is a new start. Uh, I think her decision was much more carefully considered uh than debbie's but i could certainly understand where debbie was coming from in terms of like you know i hate everything like let me let me change it not the like maybe with a better plan this works out better but i think i understand where she's coming from a little bit more than with some of the decisions that she makes later on i feel like if she didn't forget to pick up her son it would have been better it would have been more okay yeah, it's it's tough. This is why having kids on shows is tough because how do you write Randy into the show? And I think that's something they they kind of solve in season three in some ways by just almost taking Randy out of the equation in terms of having to worry about him as much. So, yeah, I'll be very curious as we rewatch season three uh, how the Debbie, Mark, Randy stuff co- goes. OK, so I'm glad you said that because season one we were like, we don't we don't need Randy. Right, like we saw what happened, but we I got it. We don't need this. Too much friggin' Randy in season two. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know, man. It's 
Kids are kids are really tough. Oh, kids I'm sorry. Really you know what? Pause that. Too much Mark. I did this again, and I did this in the last episode too. I got the too much Mark in season two. Again, I like Rich Summers, but the show's not the show's not about him. The show is give Debbie about, more agency. Damn it! I think give the give the women more agency. And yes. again, I know that this is the 1980s, but Halt and Catch Fire was able to do this really successfully. And I know that I keep making that comparison, but they were really able to thread the needle of like, yes, these are women in power and they're struggling, but they still maintain a lot of agency. And I think that when you, and it's especially the, the timing is good on this because I remember watching the glow documentary and yes, they, they have their issues, but I really feel like those women had a lot of agency and it doesn't feel like the women on the show have a lot of agency. It's the way the show is organized sometimes is really strange too, because like this is a struggling show that is like going to get canceled after 20 episodes or whatever. Glow was on the air for five years and it certainly was not a runaway hit, but clearly there is a decent audience. It's weird how the glow in net, the, this Netflix version is like this cult hit when they're like downplaying the impact of the women. It's, it's really, really strange at times. Yeah, I agree with that. But something that he did do, speaking of like agency and decision stuff, is I like that Ruth reads the room that the discomfort of welfare cream running off and she decides, I'm going to do a kidnapping angle where I'm going to pretend to kidnap uh, a fan and say it's Liberty Bell's kid. Debbie reads it right and plays with it. And then we're off and, hey, there's our big new rivalry between the two of them. So I like that Ruth gets that moment, at least. Again, Ruth is the Bret Hart of this uh, of the show. <laughs> She's always saving it. And if she could take a front turnbuckle bump, then she really would be Bret Hart. Because, because Hulk Hogan doesn't know any better and has to bury his opponent and, po- and Liberty Bell must pose. Uh, yeah, she really, that really, this really is a thing. And I, I just can't help but make the connection. And I don't think that this was conscious on their part, on the performer's part, but I can't help but see these two people. And you're like, you're Hulk Hogan, you're Bret Hart, like down to even the looks that they give people and the way they behave. It's just, it, it very much comes across. Blonde and brown hair. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 but that's also why the relationship works too. I think between the two of them, that's why they're, they're the beating heart of the show. And again, just like with Halt and Catch Fire, I wish that the show was so, so much more focused on them. Maybe Debbie should have gotten a stress skull that did not shave her head, but just shave part of it. Brother. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm not going to touch that one. Well, let's go into episode five. Perverts are people too. This is where we really get into the crux of the Me Too stuff going on here. The show is in danger. The ratings are soft. Their sponsors pulled out. And the producers are going to have a meeting with the head of the network, Tom Grant. And Sam very appropriately sees it as what it is, them having to resell the show. But the Me Too stuff comes in when Tom Grant requests a one-on-one meeting with Ruth and sexually harasses her over dinner. And she leaves when Tom is making a bath for the two of them taking a stand, and the next day he informs them that their show is being moved from its morning time slot to a 2 a.m. time slot, a time when no one's watching television. And Ruth – and the producers are like, why is this happening? This is BS. And then Ruth confides to Debbie why it's happening, uh, You know the correlation of being moved and her turning down Tom Grant's advances, and Debbie's mad that Ruth didn't placate him. And the line that I took away with this is, is Debbie says, feminism has principles, life has compromises. 
you know, she's been in soap operas. So I'm sure she's seen these moments where you, you don't necessarily have to sleep with a producer, but you have to flirt with them or this or that to kind of get your way. And, you know, her, her is she, her take is that's life. That is what it is. And that's how you have to get ahead. And even says, you know, yes, women shouldn't have to do this and they should be producers and they should be this and they all that, but they're not. And that's just the way it is. So kind of her America Ferrera moment in a way, a little bit more mean spirited and then hopeful than hers was, but pretty powerful stuff in this episode. Very hard to watch at times when, when Tom Grant is like, put me in a headlock, Ruth. Um, I mean, look, Tom Grant, if you want to do that, I mean, I'm, I don't know if apartment wrestling was a thing yet, but you could certainly have your interests placated, uh, in a consensual way. I, you know, it's, this very much feels like they wanted to do something with Tom Grant, but they didn't, they didn't want to go all the way with it. And I think that's a good thing. Again, I don't want to see, I don't need to see a rape happen on screen, but it just feels like they're trying to have their cake and eat it too with the way that they executed it. And clearly having Debbie have the reaction she does. I mean, clearly you want to keep that conflict going between them. So when their blow up happens, like it's a, it's a really big deal and this can be a part of it. And Sam has a, you know, very different reaction to it that is much more healthy, but it's colored by the fact that they're heading in the direction of a, of a romance between the two of them. So I can't help but, feel like that 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 gets colored i i like the um sort of the 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 rest quote unquote um their idea for getting gimmick tables like that to me is some of the best and more entertaining stuff in the episode and i know it's it very much feels like at times like debbie and ruth are always kind of in the main plot and we kind of give the rest something to do and i love the idea that sheila is super popular i think that I don't know if that – maybe it does work in the 1980s. I feel like that's something that would happen much more today where a character like Sheila would be uh, much more embraced. And I, yeah, it's the, – the the interactions between female fans and, uh, and male wrestling fans is always something. Um, that is another conversation that is well worth having, but we're not going to have it here. Um, it's, um, it is interesting and I will capital I interesting, I would say. And, uh, that gets explored even more with, uh, Britannica and what happens with the wedding. But yeah, again, I think the show, I, I like the, the idea of it, but it very much feels like at times I don't know how popular the show is supposed to be because they're very clearly our fans. Maybe the idea is there aren't enough fans, I guess, but. I think that they do some really good things with, you know, trying to show that they're not devoid of popularity. But again, KDTV, I wish they, because they called it a cable station at one point. I can't tell if it's cable. Is it syndication? Like, what is this station? Is this like a super station like TBS and WGN? Like, I wish they had been a little bit more clear about what, what this station actually is because on the one hand, like they talk about glow and their ratings and it being really soft, but on the other, they're like doing this decently budgeted cop show. And I don't know how a cop show for just one market is, is going to work. Yeah, that's a good point. We don't really get the scope of what KDTV is, how much money they have, how well their channel does, what size of the channel it is. Is it local, national, whatever? So that is kind of a missing piece of this puzzle. Like just how important is it to stay on KDTV or, or outside of shopping around at other networks? We'd find out, you know, why that's not really possible at the end of the series. But at least for now, it's like, could we go somewhere else? What are our options here? 
Uh, but I do really like, as much as I don't like how there's a lot of like, oh, and then the rest of the crew. This is a good one because I like that they have differences in what level of engagement they want to have with their fans. You know, how, how Sheila's not into the idea of doing so and the, the meet and greets and stuff, but she does it at the end and how, yes, her having super fans is really fun. And it's important too because I think that's why the end scene where Ruth is watching over them having the, the meet and greets with everybody, why it hurts that it hurts her to see like, you know, personally, I made the right choice to not engage with the president, but I may have hurt a dozen plus women because of this decision. And that's an awful thing to have to think about. So it, it, it worked in so many different ways, but it, it was fun getting to see the characters think, in well, that role. I think we needed to see Ruth tell, I, I think I would have loved to have seen Ruth tell, the rest of the cast and to get their reactions and maybe have their reactions be closer to Sam, because I think what you do in that moment is you really do establish the bond between Ruth and the rest of the cast. And again, further separate Debbie out from the others. I think that would have been a really great moment. Yes, I do too. And you know what? I was going to make a judgment call here because there's this whole side story with Bash and Florian, but for me, it didn't do anything for me. And I don't really think it went anywhere important. So is there even really much to say here? I mean, they're trying to, they get AIDS on the show, I guess. Right. That's about it. That doesn't, I don't, I think it's really, it's not appropriate to bring AIDS into this comedic TV show. No, it it just feels like we're in the eighties. We need to touch on it, but you don't. And this, this storyline takes up too much time for the last few episodes. And it just, you could have done without it for all the reasons. I mean, Bash bash in general, I think I, I, I would have just liked him to be as carny as David McLean, and I think that would have been perfectly acceptable. But they, they, they try to make him into a character, and it doesn't really work. We get enough of him as the producer. We get enough of him as the as the the commentator I, and the ring announcer. I did not need this storyline at all, especially when we talk about there's I, I too much men great. on the show. Yeah, and his commentary can sometimes be really awkward. Again, I really wish he was – I think I wanted more competence from him, like – even if it's fake confidence, but I, I think that that would have helped my appreciation of him just in terms of like, he has some ingenuity. He's kind of a liar. He's kind of a shyster, but like deep down, he kind of knows what he's doing. I just, yeah, competence and fake confidence. I, that's what I needed more of, especially when he was doing the commentary. Definitely. And then episode six is called work the leg. A nice little wrestling term there where they learn that their show was replaced by a men's wrestling show, and Bash thinks that they need to up the physical aspect of their show to compete and, I guess, try to win their time slot back. I'm not really sure what the reality of that is, but we'll go with it for a television show. At this point, Debbie and Ruth are being quiet about the real reason they're being punished, and so it's Cherry and Carmen who are tasked with having to train all the women on some more uh, physical moves. That leads to a nice montage. They get... Uh, their bond strengthened, and we even get some talk about Carmen stealing her brother's moves to use on Glow, and how there's a there's a code of not stealing people's other moves. And I know, I'm sure you and I have both been exposed to this, Jerome, of just like if somebody does something and it's they feel it's their move, if someone else does it, it's a, it's an infraction against them. And I like this actually plays a role later in the show, but it's very real to uh, wrestling at times. Yeah, I mean Roderick Strong, who is who is known for doing a lot of wrestling moves called the backbreaker. I guess like that's the first thing that came to mind when I was hearing this is that who did Roderick Strong yell at about do, using a backbreaker? Do you remember? I don't. I don't remember this story at all. 
Okay, it was somebody. It's it's not really that relevant. It was somebody. I feel like it was a Ring of Honor show or something like that. So it's not really that relevant. But again, it's kind of a real thing. I don't know if it's as much of a thing in the '80s as it would be today because the the they do so much more in terms of moves. So I don't know as much, but. Uh, yeah, I, this, this is, this is a solid episode. I think that the, the quote unquote, the rest get a lot more to do here. Uh, you have Cherry and Yolanda's match. You have yes. a lot of Cherry, honestly. And I think that's a good thing. Cause again, I think she's underserved at times. And, and Carmen is quite frankly too. It just, this is an episode that I think really would have benefited from the 45 minute runtime as well. Because I think you could have put over the, uh, more of the physical aspect and what they needed to do. And also, uh, Debbie's rapid uh, uh, dissension into madness. 100%. And I do like that they have the loser leaves town match with the junk chains and Cherry allows Yolanda to win because she doesn't want to do that character anymore. And then we get the side scene where Justine has Ruth go to the small film festival where one of Sam's films is screening and her AV club fans go and they love it. Justine's. And I also like that this is where Ruth tells Sam about the Tom and, and the sexual harassment. He says, fuck that guy. And he feels better because it's not his creative vision that was getting poo-pooed. It was the fact that Ruth wouldn't sleep with him, which is why they're getting punished. And I like that the him smashing Tom's car and the KDTV guy has his back. And uh, and then later inviting Justine to sit with him in the production booth. A lot of good Sam growth in this episode. Yeah, this is definitely one of the better Sam episodes. And I'm, I'm glad that they went in this direction with Sam, even though, again, it's going to lead to some frustration in the penultimate episode. But uh, – yeah, the the KDTV guy, um, what's his name? Remind me. It's Glenn. Glenn. Right? Uh, I get a lot of Gil from The Simpsons vibes from him in in some of these episodes. Just very hapless, uh, definitely not as competent, perhaps as uh, we were led to believe in season one. But I love that. <laughs> I love that he even says that nobody likes Tom Grant. So that's that's could have been great. anybody. And, could have been anybody. Absolutely could have been some hooligans, but no, it is, uh, it is Sam, uh, that destroys the car. I, you know, he should have just keyed the car. That would have probably been like destroying a window. Like it's bad, but keying the car is so much worse. Way worse. Probably more yeah, expensive because, too, to be honest. Like you have to, cause then you have to replace all that material. The window, you're just replacing the glass, but if you key the car, it's so much worse. It might be more satisfying though to smash things than it is to just key someone's car. So from that perspective, I can understand that. I mean, you're in the heat of the moment. You just got to do what you can do. But uh, if I were ever to get revenge on somebody and I wanted to do something to their car, I would key it. So Kevin, if you ever see your car keyed, uh, just know that you did something really bad to me. Okay. I, I, thanks. I guess you don't have a car. This isn't fair. You can find other ways. I'm sure. Andrew Friedman, by the way, is the actor who plays Glenn. He's been, he was in Mad Men and a bunch of other things, I think. He's, I mean, he's great. Like, he plays the character extremely well. And he's the, the, he's the hapless suit and everything, and he's great at it. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine his IMDb page is probably just hapless suit guy in like 10,000 TV shows. But again, you need the, you need those actors in these roles because somebody has to do it. You can't just have all known people. Like, you need the Andrew Friedmans in these shows because they're not going to make the show, but they're going to add a lot of flavor to it. And uh, yeah, Glenn is a terrible person, but Andrew Friedman does a good job in the role. So you mentioned that this is Debbie freaking out and she does this because she sees Mark and her secretary are dating and it really hurts her because they're hanging out with her son. 
just like Sam misdirected his anger about Ruth to firing Vicky, she directs her anger towards Sam wanting her own locker room. And then when he goes and leaves the room, she steals some of his cocaine. So she's all keyed up during her match with Zoya in the ring, and she legitimately injures Ruth's leg. And the episode immediately goes to credits with no music. And it's a hell of a moment here. And it leads into uh, your favorite episode. Is she uh, more like she's keloed, if you know what I mean. I, I do, yes. I, I, I intentionally said keyed up for that. but. Uh, so I just want to say that, again, you have this really awful emotional scene where Ruth breaks character and says Debbie in the most heartbreaking way possible. Oh. Then you see her by Lynn Shelton. It just – like that and is like the double whammy. It was just like, ugh, just hurt hurts my heart. And I do like that it goes right into the next episode, still silence, but it's, you know, Ruth is Zoya in the ring just crying because her legs, you know, hurt and everyone has to kind of drop everything. And Russell eventually is the one who slides in and takes her out and takes her to the hospital and the rest of the Glow Girls. Uh, well, I guess the Glow Girls end up taking her and then Sam and Russell follow them to the hospital while Debbie stays behind and showers and – you know, Bash trying to make her feel better. We get a real life story about when Stan Hansen uh, broke Bruno Sammartino's neck in Madison Square Garden. So I like we get a real like wrestling story to just add, it adds texture to it, I think. If you know, you know. If you don't know, it's at least some sort of story that he's telling to make her feel better. And rem- I say Debbie seems remorseless. I think that's partially true, but I think she's in, you know, she's still maybe on the come down from the cocaine and all this stuff. So there's, it's hard to tell how she really is, but it's a, uh, a lot going on here in this moment. The uh, the best moment of the episode is uh, when the the rest the rest quote unquote uh, are entertaining Ruth. It is some yes. of the funniest stuff. I couldn't help but think of Mankind in the Hospital with Vince McMahon uh, <laughs> yeah, when this is going on. But I mean this this is actually even funnier. I think just what they do to to keep Ruth cheered up, it's great stuff and it's really great character moments. And again, I really wanted I wanted more of this throughout the rest of the season. Just seeing these characters interact with each other. Again, I think there are times when I think the show is just too plot heavy and that's and that's the thing that sucks because they did such a great job casting everybody and the performances are consistently the highlight of the show. And I really wish that if we're gonna give back to this moment of telling the story of Stan Hansen hurting Bruno San Martino, I think we should have also had Bash revealing why women's wrestling, why not promote men's wrestling? Like mm-hmm. that's the biggest question that is on my mind. Like what is what is motivating him to do this with women specifically? And I think that's like if we're gonna give Bash something to do, that's what we should have him be doing. Like explaining why is he trying to give agency uh to the women. We need more of that, I think. I agree with that. I love the character scenes. I love that they all stay in the hospital because they're, they're, you know, that's the bond they have and they all like and respect Ruth and they want to make sure she's okay. I like there's discussion because Debbie's not there yet about do we think she did that on purpose? And when she eventually does arrive at the hospital, they kind of give her a a look. And I even like that art, uh, that Arthie makes her feel better by giving her a candy bar. It's not all just hatred and seething looks towards her. And much like we got the birth of Mr. Sacco in the hospital when Mankind was cheering up Mr. McMahon, uh, Cherry pitches her new character Black Magic during all of this, and it gets improved. So we get the birth of some some timeless, iconic wrestling characters in hospital scenes. Uh, yeah, Black Magic clearly more important than Mr. Sacco. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, let's say that. 
And again, we talk about with wrestling contracts here, we, we, we realize that none of them have health insurance. Uh, not none of them. A couple maybe have it because of their parents or because, you know, they're responsible adults like a Debbie. But for the most part, they either can't afford it and Bash didn't give it to him. So he has to pay out of pocket for Ruth's, uh, medical procedures. What were you saying about unions earlier, Jerome? Uh, the best day to start a union is yesterday and the second best day is today. There you go. So Sam sends the rest of the girls back, back home. So now it's just himself, Debbie and Bash staying at the hospital. And Sam gives kind of a hint to, to Debbie that, yeah, maybe you should go see Ruth and talk about this. And Ruth has a clean fracture break in her ankle. So while it's not so bad, she is put in a cast and she's going to miss the rest of the, the glow season, which obviously it might be the last. So that might be a problem. And so when Debbie tries to brush it off, it's not being a big deal and maybe trying to cast off her own involvement in it. Then we get a really big breakup between Ruth and Debbie throwing, you know, blowing up everything about them, whether it's with with uh, the mark and the cheating or how Debbie doesn't give a shit about this show, but Ruth does and all of this. And it's a, it's a hard scene to watch, but really great performances by the two of them. Really great performances. Uh, I remember when we did Veronica Mars and I talked about Kristen Bell's incredible cry face. Allison Brie is like at a nine and a half. If Kristen Bell's the standard, then Allison Brie comes really, really close. It's really heartbreaking stuff. And, and she is great. I mean, I would say Betty Gilpin is also great, but for me, this is, this is one of the best acting scenes that I've ever seen Alison Brie do because it's just so heartbreaking and there's no irony behind it. Like I think the biggest, and I know that I've kind of been negative on the show so far, but I, I like the fact that they tone down uh, a lot of Ruth's uh, like ticks in terms of like, yes, she's still a hard worker, I think just like the Parks and Rec writing crew with Amy Poehler between season one and season two, they dialed some things back. I think they did the same thing here with Ruth and made her a much more likable character. But I don't think it's I don't think they dramatically changed it. I feel like they tweaked it and just made it better and made it work for the show. I think it's it's really good stuff. And I think you can sympathize with Ruth so much more because of what's happening here and the fact that she has worked so, so hard. And I would say that the argument for the tweak in the character is the fact that she is trying to have some sort of relationship with Debbie. She wants to make this job work because this may be her last and possibly only opportunity. And for it to seemingly end like this, it's a, it is a great scene. It's probably one of the best scenes in the entire series. And again, Debbie and Ruth are, are the beating heart of the show. And, Again, when we talk about why the show is canceled too soon, their resolution that comes in season three or their conversation in season three is going to be the reason why. I'm going to make that argument, uh, but this scene is uh, tremendous stuff, and I love that we also get a nice scene between uh, Debbie and Sheila uh, just a little bit later, and Sheila basically talks about her personal life and how terrible it is, and basically getting Debbie to kind of bring her clothes and there being a, a peace offering. I love that too. And this is, I think for both Debbie and Ruth, this is something that needed to happen for all of season one and the beginning of season two. Like they were being as professional as they can be. And maybe they had some moments of trying to connect, but it really felt like a bandaid on a problem that needed to be talked at. And it boiled over into this screaming match in the hospital where tears were going and, yeah, I think it was very cathartic and it needed to happen for them to really be able to move on. Like this, this needed to happen for where they go in season three to happen. 
And I do like, like you said, when Debbie goes to the hospital to ask Sheila to bring close to Ruth, how Sheila talks about how her parents sometimes let things boil over, but they still stay together. And she also gives Debbie the idea to be the one to bring the close to her. It's like this cool moment where Sheila is a human being and not just some weirdo wolf person. And I love that she gets that moment. I like that Debbie does bring the close to her and they get to reconcile a little bit. Uh, and the sweet moment where she signs her cast, all of that is, is really good stuff. One thing I do think is a little odd is that little like button at the end where Ruth just asks Sam if they can re-sign Reggie, Vicky, the Viking. Like it just kind of comes out of the blue. Was that actor just not available for specific episodes? I have no idea. I mean, it's just, it's really strange. Like it's kind of cool that they brought her back, but also did they really need her? Do we really need somebody else in the cast? Ah, uh, no, because then you're that then you've gone from replacing one person to now being up one person when all is said and done, because it's like, OK, if they're going to get rid of Vicky and Sherry and add one person. All right. Then maybe the cast is a little bit smaller. Maybe they'll get some more time. But no, no, you end up with a net one over a cast that's already a bit underserved. Isn't it weird that Melrose gets absolutely nothing to do in this season? Like, we have barely even mentioned her. It's so weird. No, it's like, okay, she's mad because the uh, Ellen has, like, kissed her with the cameraman. And that's it. After what she got in season one, it is a crime. Yeah, it's, it's, so, it's so bizarre to me. I really like episode eight. Uh, the good twin, where we get to see an actual episode of Glow itself. I love when shows do this kind of thing. Did you like this? I really like this as well. This is my second favorite episode of the season. So my two favorite episodes are seven and eight, and eight is uh, is a solid number two. I think that again, just getting to see an actual episode. I mean, this is kind of if you're going to do this, like you have to do an actual episode. Show what it actually would look and feel like to watch an episode of Glow. I think they nailed the look. They got the laugh track going. It's, uh, it is tremendous stuff. You have the, e- the evil twin, which is something I think they referenced earlier. Uh, you have Britannica finally. It feels like Britannica is somebody else that really hasn't had a lot to do. And then all of a sudden she is all over the last three episodes. Yeah. And, uh, we also, we get a video recording of kidnapped. And, uh, as soon as <laughs> I saw that, I said, Kevin, uh, this, the screenshot of when they, uh, saying the well song for Bart uh, from The Simpsons, and and that and this are both parodies of the the charity songs, the '80s specifically. There's you know, do they know it's Christmas, which still gets played as a Christmas song on the radio because sometimes people don't understand the interpretations of songs. Like when you play "Born in the USA" on the Fourth of July to talk, to raise money for famine in Ethiopia, then the next year "We Are the World," which is an even bigger song, came out for African. Famine relief. So this is their version of the, you know, kidnapped children around the world. It's hilarious, done very well. And uh, the, I will say this: Melrose doesn't get a lot to do this season, but the makeover music video is a plus. It's a banger. I mean, that should be the opening of this podcast if you're doing your job right. If I can find it, it definitely will be. And you get two wrestling matches. You have Britannica, Black Magic, Classic Brain versus Magic, or Science versus Magic, I should say. And they get uh, to t- sadly there's uh there's no judge saying they must stay five hundred feet apart. None of that. Uh but science does win in the end. Does her boyfriend still end up a mannequin at the end of the episode? I think I think that's what happens. Because yeah, it gets turned to bash that, and then back. 
I think it's, I think we are meant to get this as like a mannequin movie reference, I think. I think that's kind of what they're going for. Maybe. Maybe. You get like Liberty Bell beaten up, Beirut and Fortune Cookie and Vicky the Viking in a handicap match on her way to go find her kidnapped child, which she saves. Uh, and this is through the help of Olga, which is Zoya's twin sister, her good twin sister. That's where the name of the episode comes from. And it's like an exchange where Liberty Bell is going to give her money to fix her broken ankle. And then uh, the episode ends with her in the room with the doctors. One of them is actually Zoya. One of them is Justine or Scab. And this is important because then we see in real life a woman is watching the television set named Rosalie and sees her on the show and is not happy about it. What is this mom doing watching Glow at 2 a.m. in the morning? Is it is it at 2 a.m. at this point? I guess it would have been. But to me, it seems like because the husband clearly was watching it because he's a pervert, but they're people too. And then saw her and said, holy <laughs> shit. And then he had to tape it on a VCR or you know VHS tape again for later watching because he's a super fan. Wink, wink. And got to show her it. That's my internal. So that's story. why people bought Shimmer DVDs. Got it. Oh, a hundred percent. Those you always heard, you know, women's wrestling and death matches always sold the most DVDs, and I think there's there's fetish properties to both. Uh, absolutely, and yeah, I, I just I the, there really isn't a lot to talk about plot wise with this episode. It's just a really fun watch, I think. Well, except Beirut in the show daydreams about uh, being a dancer and doing, and she does a dance number with Yolanda, and that leads to stuff in episode nine and ten. Finally it given certainly our, does. It leads to stuff. stuff to that is one way of putting it. Okay, so episode nine, Rosalie, we got to talk about it. Not your favorite. I can hear you groaning already. But Rosalie is Justine's mom. She clearly has a problem with Justine being on the show, wants her to come home. Ruth is at their house because she had uh, she she uh, had dinner, family dinner with Sam and Justine. Everyone's overserved, so she just stays the night. So she sort of helps Sam kind of talk it out and they say all right well justine can at least stay through the night because she has her her school dance and justine during the dance like oh, i'm gonna run away with billy to new york and this is when sam turns into dad mode and says you know if if you really want to be your own person then do that don't run away to be with some guy stop caring about what people think it's a good sam moment then you have a bad sam moment where sam and ruth slow dance and he tries to kiss her and she has to go away and uh, Ruth then later goes to Russell's house to apologize and bring him movies, and they kiss on the stairs. I I can tell you're not a fan of this this Sam and Ruth dynamic, and I can't say I disagree with you. I hate it. Uh, it, it actually starts earlier. I think Rosalie – to me, Rosalie is right, but they turn her into a shrill, and I hate that part of it too. Like regardless of the reasons, and even if Justin and – or Justine and Sam are bonding, like Rosalie is 100 percent – in the right and the way that it's framed is that she's like a bad person for wanting to take Justine away from this and I don't know I don't think they nail that part the the Sam and Ruth stuff is just an abomination I mean it's just I don't know where this came from I don't know whose idea this was but there 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 really needed to be a rethinking of this because on the one hand and I know that there is you know there is a different in terms of consent but to have Ruth on the one hand be like I don't want to be sexually harassed, which she shouldn't be. But then like being in love with the director, it just, it makes for a really weird dynamic that I'm not a fan of at all. And to me, I think you could have Sam just gain respect for the whole cast 
and develop a platonic relationship with all of them. And I think that would have actually been much, number one, much healthier and better for everybody involved. So I'll mention this now. I have at the end of my notes an article I found in the New York Times called The New Season of Glow is Even Better Than the First Except for One Thing. And it says, so, will they or won't they? Even if they don't, the show has already diminished one of its biggest strengths, their relationship by introducing this tired question. And if Ruth and Sam do hook up, it'll undercut each character in different ways. And it talks about how Slam, you know, Sam's evolution towards being less of a sexist pig, you know, and not be, you know, it's better if his redemption is on its own. And then, you know, Ruth, who has said she has poor dating choices, pivoting to Sam doesn't really, it, it's more of a step backward than anything else. So it feels like them getting together is a step back for both of them, not to mention like in real life, there's a 20 year age gap between, between the two of them. So there's a little bit of just like a ick factor to it. I take it you agree with that sentiment. Absolutely. And if you look at three of the four shows, I don't know what the difference in age is between Alison Brie and Vincent Carthizer, but Bojack Horseman, there's clearly an age dynamic there. There's one in community. There's one here. It's not a good trend. No, it sounds bad. Now that you mentioned it's, it. Uh, it's bad. And again, I think that – again, I do think they have chemistry. So I guess that's why they made this decision. But it just – it doesn't – it doesn't work. It just doesn't – I'm never going to be into this storyline because I think it just – it reflects very poorly on all of them. And it just – it kind of stinks. Like at the end of the day, it just stinks that, you know, we have this really fun show that is an easy watch. But there, there's a lot of there's a lot more flaws than I think I realized uh, on the first watch. And again, I think in terms of performances, I mean, Alison Brie is to me an, an all star. And if she is in a TV show, I'm probably going to watch it. But it just it stinks that she is constantly finding herself in these positions, which is a position uh, that many women find themselves in in Hollywood that they end up the younger woman and they're like treated as old hags when they're 30 or 35. And it's really, it's really weird, really disturbing. And again, I want to point out that they are talking about the me too issues. This is part of that. And there is a lack of self-awareness, I think. And I think it lends credence to the idea of lip service being paid to it, but not really understanding the full scope of the problem. 100%. 100%. It's like, we're going to include it, and that counts as acknowledgement, right? Yeah, I mean, shows shows and movies love to do it. Like, we're going to acknowledge the thing, but we're still going to do it anyway. Yes. They do, they do be doing that. I will say, though, as much – like, I feel like a lot of Debbie in this season has been pretty negative, but I actually do like her and Bash going to, like, this – convention of like tv convention stuff that's sort of like them trying to pitch their shows and the 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 scenes with them doing the whisper campaign to try to get people interested in glow and then it ends up working i liked those scenes quite a bit now the floor him getting the call at the end of florian dying because of aids is you know it is what it is we've already touched on that but just seeing debbie and bash together and the whisper campaign working i had i had fun with that yeah, I, I just think that you know, there's another way to address Bash's sexuality without bringing AIDS into it, and that's it's it's really strange, just that whole execution. But you're right, the Debbie Bash stuff it's it's some of the best stuff. It's it's funny, 
it's it's engaging. It really gives Debbie a lot of the agency. I think we needed a lot more of that of Debbie taking agency, even if it's sometimes good, sometimes bad. But I really wish that that we had gotten a lot a lot more of this and the fact that they're successful. And again, the the idea is I want to see ingenuity. And we got that here. And that's like, this is very carny like, and I wanted more carny from a wrestling show. Well, you did watch The Wrestler, so I feel like you got your fix there. I did. I was going to save that brief review, emphasis on brief for the end. But <laughs> okay. yes, there is a seven episode uh, first season of Wrestlers. It is from the filmmakers behind Last Chance You, as well as Cheer. And I, I will say that if you are a non-wrestling fan, I would recommend this without question. I think people who don't like wrestling will really like it without any caveats. If you are a wrestling fan, you need to understand that everybody in the show is either a carny, a mark, or both. And if you can get through the first episode and you can kind of dive deeper, I think there is a lot to the show that is really interesting with the idea being that, again, everybody's terrible, but I think you, I think you will understand a lot about wrestling even more than you thought. And any show that makes Al Snow a compelling figure has to be, has to, it gets at least a B from me because Al Snow is almost never compelling, but this documentary does a really good job of, again, I don't think they make him be a good – there's a difference between being a good person and making him a compelling figure, and I think they make him a compelling figure. And not in the – like the Mickey Rourke, the wrestler way. I think they give him a little bit more dignity if that makes sense. That does make sense, and I, that actually is good to hear in some respects. Um, Kevin, I think you should you – watch the last episode. Just skip. Just watch the last episode. Okay. Is that the one where they tell him their pay-per-view got like no buys? Um, it's the one, it's the one that's focused specifically on Al Snow a lot. And you don't, you don't need to watch it. It's, it actually will make narrative sense even without having watched the rest of the season. Great. I think. Well, well then for the rest of the girls, they're all sad because the show's coming to an end or at least they think so. So they're, they're all going to go figure out what their next jobs are. And they realize that Britannica can't get a job because she doesn't have a green card. So she's going to be deported if she doesn't exit the country on her own soon or figure something out. And while they're all getting high together, Carmen has this idea because a fan earlier in the day named Cupcake, who's a super fan of Britannica, proposes to her in the hotel. And she brushes off in the most polite way you can do this. But then they realize, hey, just get married to him and you'll have a green card and you'll be able to stay. That's played by Patrick Renna, who plays the fan named Cupcake. I, I, I He's a Sandlot character. I know he just done some other things, kind of, sort of. Please um, tell me. I know you're not a sports fan, but please tell me you are a Sandlot fan. Of course, yeah, Sandlot's great. Okay, that's I, I that that makes you that makes that warms the cockles of my heart. I love the Mighty Duck series as well. Uh, you know, it's funny. Patrick Rennet is one of those, just like Haley Joel Osmond. Their face, their facial features have pretty much stayed the same, even though they're an adult now. It's really it's it's quite the phenomena. And then the last episode of the season, every potato has a receipt. In in wrestling parlance, a potato is a real strike, and a receipt is when someone gives you a real strike back for hitting them with the potato. Here's where we could talk about the problematic casting. In episode nine, one of the chaperones at the dance is played by Horatio Sands, who at the time was not accused of anything, but since then I think has been accused of some unsavory stuff. 
There was uh, uh, there's a whole lawsuit. Again, I mentioned the Mo Ryan book. The Mo Ryan book gets specifically into the issues of Saturday Night Live. So read about there. Horatio Sands is rightfully not working, and hindsight is twenty twenty. But there's nothing the show could have done at the time. Well, he is a strip club owner in here, and he sell and he tells Sam, you know, hey, come in anytime you'd like. And so he does and notices Yolanda is stripping. And it's worth mentioning that Sam says in episode one he cast her because she gave him a good lap dance. Now, it turns out she's a great credit to the show, but it is sort of like this, uh, of course, that's how a man casts a woman. But what he also notices that Artie is there watching her, and she obviously feels some sort of way about Yolanda. She's not sure exactly what to make of it, but I like the conversation they have and that Artie is like weirded out because it's like your dad watching you watch someone at this strip club. Uh, but, uh, Sam also invites Ray, that's, uh, the character of the strip club owner's name to the taping. So you've got him amongst the other TV executives that Debbie and Bash were able to convince to come to this final taping to save our show. Did you get the Jason Lee chasing Amy when he walks into the lesbian bar vibes when Sam sees Yolanda and Artie together? <laughs> Not exactly. I see where you're coming from. I can't find the gift because I keep I keep wanting to send it to you for moments like that. It, it's just unfortunate. But again, we are keeping the porn wrestling relationship going here. Yes, obviously a strip club is not porn, but it is kind of seen in, in a very similar light. So very good stuff. And I uh, and yes, now I'm thinking of Jason Lee doing the oh yeah, and then clapping as he realizes it. Good stuff. But it's the women talking that make him realize. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And then we also have a, where all the women are doing this talk show interview, like a, like a morning zoo kind of show. And her brother actually calls in there to yell about her about stealing her moves, which I think is like, you couldn't have just talked to her in real life. And then both her brother Kurt, played by Carlito, and Chico Guapo, played by Chavo Guerrero Jr., they come in to confront her and Debbie takes them out and to work on a solution, which is paid off later. But I am glad that Chavo Guerrero Jr., the trainer of all the women, does get an on-screen role for the show, too. Yeah, given the work that he's put in, he probably deserves it. And uh, his sequence with Debbie is really, really good. And we, you know, I don't think it's necessarily like thinking about the wrestling on the show, but the sequence that they have, of course, because it's Calvo Guerrero and he's been training all of them, it's one of the best wrestling sequences in the show. Yes, yes, it is. But first, we get our wedding between was supposed to be Britannica and the fan, but Bash, meanwhile, decides, hey, you know what? It's probably better you marry me instead if you're going to do this because I'm not a stranger. I think he confesses some feelings for her, and they go rogue and they get fan and they get married right then and there. And I like that the fans pissed and swearing and and storms off too. And of course, he has to mention that it. He has to mention wrestling is fake. <laughs> of course, that always has to happen, and that gets the biggest boost from the crowd of all. Uh, you know, mixed <laughs> mixed feelings on the on the Bash and Ronda thing. I think the scene they have a little bit later where she gives him a chance to bail is is sweet, and I like that she admits like, "Hey, I don't feel the." The same way you do about me, but you know, we'll take this day by day. So I think it ends up in a good place, but I do have mixed feelings about it overall. I mean, the problem is again, Britannica, you don't really see a lot of her until episode eight. So it's really hard to, it's really hard to care. And it feels like the only reason, reason she's being brought to the forefront is because she's marrying back and again, kind of taking the agency away from the female character in this instance. So, uh, yeah, I, Keith uh, throwing out, uh, throwing people out, and especially the fan. Uh, I definitely enjoyed that a lot. Keith, he doesn't get a lot to do, but he is just the perfect background character. Some of the lines, some of the way he delivers those lines, uh, very good stuff. 
And I like how the bouquet toss turns into a battle royal for who's going to be the the season finale crown winner. They get the guys involved. Liberty Bell's big spot is this wheelbarrow into a crossbody. I wrote Bash's commentary line saying it's like doing algebra in space made me laugh because it doesn't make any sense. It's really good stuff. And uh, I also want to point out that uh, this should have been a reverse battle royal so that they could take credit for for inventing it. <laughs> they should have done that. Do you want to take credit for that, though? I mean, it, it would probably make Vince Russo mad. And that, that has its advantages, I would say. There is a benefit to that. I will agree. But I do also like – see, this is the stuff in the Ruth and Sam relationship I like, not the romantic part. But that right. Sam, that, that Sam surprises her that, that Zoya is going to win the battle royal and end the season as the crown winner. Because you know what? If this is going to be the end of the show, everything she's done for the show, I, she 100% deserves that honor. Like that she gets Absolutely. the zip line moment, gets eliminated, becomes the, the champion. This is a good Ruth and Sam moment. They did not hire the crew that did Owen Hart in 1999, thankfully. Holy they got shit. a good crew. You went there. <laughs> I did, I mean, I- did you expect me not to? I, I did not even think of that at all, to be honest with you. A zipline in wrestling? I mean, it's either own heart or sting. And thankfully, they got the Sting crew to do this right. And it's also a much smaller building. It's it's a really touching moment. It is genuinely one of the best moments on the show. And it really does feel like a natural payoff for everything that has happened throughout the course of the season. And I think it's mostly well built too. I, I really do wish though that we had gotten more of Ruth with the other, uh, the rest, so to speak, as we've been referring to them. Unfortunately, yes. I would have liked more of that, but it's, it, it does feel like a natural payoff. And she is the person, uh, who, if this is the end, she is the one who deserves the crown because she has put the most work in, sacrificed her body. Um, you know, basically almost, you know, she has a clean fracture of her ankle. It's, it's, it's genuinely a touching moment. Absolutely. And it is not the end of the, of Glow, but it is the end of Glow on television as Glenn has to unfortunately inform that, hey, we own all the characters. Show can't be shopped around to other networks, but they can still run live non-televised events for their fans. And Ray loved the show and it just so turns out that he's got a club in Vegas. They need a headliner, so he invites them all to take residency at his place in Vegas, run the show night after night for their fans, and they accept. And Debbie's very sad about leaving uh, Randy, but Mark and her are actually leaving in a good place, and Mark's, you know, encouraging her to, to go and take the job, and hey, you know, this is a benefit of divorce. Ruth says goodbye to Russell, and the crew heads off in a bus to Vegas to end the season, and you see kind of... What, what the characters are and, and seated and all that stuff. And of course, Ruth and Sam see next to each other grown. Uh, but that's how the season ends. We're taking the show to Vegas. I think it's going to be, again, I, I, I have very fond memories of season three. And I think it's because so much of the emphasis transfers to character development because they're doing the same show every night. They don't have to focus on the plot in the show. So I think that's one of the reasons that I'm excited to rewatch season three, knowing where they're going. I love that Sam tells Ruth that she is going to hate Vegas. That is a very Sam thing to say. It's really good stuff. Uh, Debbie's emotional moment with Randy. I love that. Uh, I think it's, uh, again, a genuinely – a touching thing. And yeah, I think we end in a, in a very different place than the real life glow, but I, I really am excited to rewatch season three, I would say. But before we get there, Jerome, your overall thoughts on season two of glow. 
So I remember season two being better than season one, and I'm actually going to reverse course. I think season one is better. I think season two has a lot more flaws than I remember. I think if Sam and Ruth's romance, if there was no romance, I would probably say season two is better. Again, I think the last episode being 45 minutes helps tremendously. They're able to do so much more. And I, I, again, I don't want this show to be like 90 minutes or an hour, but again, 40 to 45 minute episodes, I think makes, would have made a huge difference. I think the show would have been 20% better just for that decision alone. So it just feels like characters are in and out. We barely talk about Melrose. Britannica's not really around until like the last three episodes. Carrie is like training the wrestlers again in episode six. And she kind of disappears for episodes four and five. There's things that sometimes go unexplained, but I think the show is still incredibly watchable because the performances across the board are so good. In case I haven't said it, Mark Marin, Allison Bree, Betty Gilpin. I mean, the work that they do on this show deserves Emmy consideration. I, I think they got nominated. I don't know if it was for this season. I mean, but their performances across the board are really excellent. And even though the, the bit players don't get a lot to do, I think they do a really, really good job. And even, even Yolanda, I mean, it's, it sucks that Shakira Barrera doesn't really get a lot to do. I know she has more to do in season three. So I'm excited for that. I think Yolanda kind of fit right in with the rest of the cast in both good ways and bad ways. But I mean, for me, it's, it's the performances and, and I think the visual look of the show is also really good. I think it feels very eighties like. I think the visual look is best represented by, uh, the pastiche, the eighth episode, which is an actual glow episode. And yeah, I think that's the reason that I will continue to stick around and I'm excited to get into season three is because the performances continue to be incredibly consistent and for all the flaws of the show, I think that's what will always keep me watching and the direction as well because there's a lot of really good montages and the show has a good pace to it. And I guess that would be the trade-off of having 45-minute episodes, but um, I still think there's a lot of good stuff here. and I still think this is worth watching, um, just knowing even that there are still those flaws that we've talked about. 100% agree with all of that. I think this has some of my favorite episodes so far, but I do think season one stronger overall. Performances are fantastic. They, what, even when they're not given the most to do with or the writing doesn't do them so great. Everyone performs and excels. It's really easy to watch. And if you like season one, it's 100% worth your time watching season two as well. And yeah, like I can complain about them focusing too much on the main three players and not giving some of the rest of the girls good time, but at least those three are stellar and for awards they did get nominated for a couple things in primetime emmys uh betty gilpin was nominated for outstanding supporting actress in a comedy series but did not win but uh shauna duggins won for outstanding stunt coordination for a comedy series or a variety program so it's it's kind of like those movies that win a bunch of technical awards but nothing big that seems to be the story of glow uh throughout its years so that is is what it is yeah, um, it's it's unfortunate. I think if this show had more award buzz, it probably does get a fourth season. If Betty Gilpin wins or Allison Brie wins, it probably gets that fourth season. Agreed. But we'll be back next month to talk about season three. In the meantime, I ain't got no plugs. What about you, Jerome? 
Brian and I are currently on our farewell tour for Superhero Pantheon. In the month of October, we covered DC. Here in the month of November, we are covering Marvel. And the last episode, the last official episode of Superhero Pantheon will be, Kevin, you'll like this, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. So definitely check that out on The Real World. And yeah, I, I can't think of a more fitting finale than Guardians of the Galaxy 3. I think that's, that is the perfect way to cap off our like five-year run of doing Superhero Pantheon. Just as uh, Jimmy Pistols is exiting the MCU on top, so is the Marvel and the Superman, uh, the Superhero Pantheon. Uh, for sure. So, for Jerome, I've been Kevin. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next month. The final episode of Cancel Too Soon covering the third and final season of Glow, the gorgeous ladies of wrestling on Netflix. Hey, knowing that he was on the Sandlot, shouldn't he have had a crush on Ruth?